Okay, um, some of you who are, have been in other classes are just jumping in for the last two weeks of a series that I've been doing uh, in Exodus, and we are in a section of Exodus that deals with the tabernacle. Um, it's a section of Exodus that's often skipped. It's a lot of detail, and it's detail that some of us have a trouble wrapping our minds around. So let me just give... I know some of you have been here through all of this, but every week there's new people. So let me just do a very, very quick review. When Moses goes up onto the mountain the first time, he gets the law and what we call the Book of the Covenant. He brings that back, explains it to the people, and the people say, all that the Lord has said we will do. In other words, they agree to the covenant. And then there is a ceremony. They offer um, um, up bulls. They pour the blood on an altar. They have memorial stones for each of the tribe. They take that blood, they sprinkle it on the people. And then they go up onto the mountain, Moses and 70 elders, plus Aaron and Hur. And there's an interesting statement, they see God. They actually see the, the feet of God standing on a blue pavement that's crystal clear, but they see God. And it says he doesn't kill them. And then they sit down and they eat and they drink. And then Moses goes back up onto the mountain to get the Ten Commandments written in stone. Up until now it was verbal, but now it's going to be written down. It's like putting it, we've agreed, let's put it on paper and sign it. Moses goes up on the mountain, he gets the Ten Commandments. Those of you who've been in class know the answer to this. What does he also get? Plans for the tabernacle. In fact, six chapters of plans for the tabernacle. Um, we oftentimes just think of him coming back with the, tab the Ten Commandments. Sometimes we ask, why would it take 40 days to get the Ten Commandments? Um, I don't think it would take 40 days to get the Ten Commandments. I don't know if it'd take 40 days for the plans, but God keeps saying over and over again, make this tabernacle exactly according to the plans that I showed you on the mountain. So God, it's almost as if God is laying out blueprints and going over the blueprints with Moses. And he's saying, do everything perfectly. And that is because the tabernacle is a shadow of a greater tabernacle which um, Jesus entered into after he uh, died on the cross. He entered into a, a greater tabernacle, and he entered into a greater holy place, and he sprinkled his blood there. And so the tabernacle is the only building ever designed by God. There's no other building that we know of, no other structure that was designed by God. No other structure that we know of that was uh, implemented where God actually filled somebody with two people with the Holy Spirit to make sure it was made exactly the way he wanted it to. And everything in the tabernacle is significant. There's nothing there that is there just uh, for whatever. So we, we've gone through the tabernacle and we can't spend a lot of time with that, but I will draw the same picture on the board. Some of you are getting tired of it, I'm sure, but. The tabernacle is 150 feet long by 75. On this side, it has a gate, which is about 30, um, well, it's actually 30 and 30, it's 
I believe there's a, a opening here. On the inside, we have the actual tabernacle. This is the courtyard. The tabernacle is a building. It's a tent. It's got a holy place and the, the holiest place and the holy place. Um, we talked about the furnishing of it. It's really interesting, but the covering to it is four layers. The lower layer is white with blue and gold and scarlet and purple, each color significant, with cherubim. So when you were in the holy, of the holy place looking up, you would see this beautiful embroidery. What did you see from the outside? Leather. Um, it's a picture of Christ's humanity and his deity. He, from the inside, those of us who are in the tabernacle looking up, we see this beautiful curtain. From the outside, all you see is leather. Um, and then in between, there's two layers, a layer of ram's um, goat skin and a layer of ram skin. Why are there two layers in between the two? That's a picture of the sacrifice that Christ has for us. Uh, the, the, the ram, um, the goat, which is the uh, sin offering, and the ram, which was a burnt offering, and both of them cover this tabernacle. The tabernacle inside is made up of boards which are covered in pure gold. So when you walked into the tabernacle, all you would see is gold and this beautiful covering on the top, which also hung over the entrance. Um, God starts from the inside. There is the Ark of the Covenant. What's in the Ark of the Covenant? Ten Commandments. Later on, manna, and later on, Aaron's rod that budded, but the Ten Commandments. Um, and then above it is the mercy seat. It's the angels with their wings across. I know that's not a very good picture. Um, it's called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is where God speaks to us from or speaks to the high priest or speaks um, from. That's where the presence of God is. The Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, contains the law, the unbroken law of God. The only way to approach God is in absolute holiness. You cannot go to God when the Ten Commandments were broken. Remember, Moses goes up on the mountain, he comes back, the people have already sinned. What does he do with the Ten Commandments? He breaks them. Goes up a second time, takes that second copy, puts them in the Ark of the Covenant. You wish to come to God, you only come to God with the Ten Commandments unbroken. But of course, there's no way for us to do that. So on this beautiful Ark of the Covenant, every year the high priest brings in and sprinkles blood of a bull for himself and blood of a, of a, a goat for the people and sprinkles it on the Holy, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, do you understand that over a thousand years that Ark of the Covenant is covered in blood? They don't wipe it off. Are you allowed to touch the Ark? No, you don't, you don't wipe it off. It's drenched in blood. Um, but it's above that, it's that blood there on the Ark, on the Ten Commandments, God's holiness that allows God to meet with man. Outside we have the table of showbread, the lamp stand, and then there's an altar of incense, which we haven't talked about yet. Um, table of showbread is the uh, bread is placed there and the priests eat from that bread. The lamp gives light 
um, and we'll talk about that today. And then the altar of incense we'll talk about as well. Um, we've said this a number of times, who's allowed into this, the holy place? Priests, and, and who goes into the holiest place? High priest once a year. Um, if we're looking at the, the tabernacle in terms of uh, allegory, um, analogy, uh, we are the priests because we are allowed in here. In fact, the tabernacle is a type of Christ. If you are in Christ, you are one of his. You see the glories of salvation Everything you need is there, the light, the bread, the altar of incense, and the sins are covered. And of course, we know that when Jesus died, what happened to this veil? It's split, it basically doesn't exist anymore for us. We are able to go directly to the throne of, of God. Now, um, there's other things too. The bases of the tabernacle are all made of silver. 100 pound blocks of silver hold up the tabernacle. Seems a little extravagant, but it represents the blood of Jesus Christ. And if that seems like a jump, go back and listen a couple of weeks ago. Um, the, the blood is the foundation of the temple, the silver. Um, and if you think it's extravagant that, that silver holds up the tabernacle, it's even more extravagant that our salvation comes from the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's much more precious than silver or gold. Um, now, what we're going to do today is something that I said I wasn't going to do. I think there's an order. God starts in the holy place, works out, and now we're to the outer court. And I'm going to cover today chapters 27 and chapter 30, uh, which we're going to have to really move fast, and I probably am not going to get through it, but um, 27 and 30. And the reason is chapter 28 and 29 deals with the priest's garments and the consecration of the priest and we'll deal with those next week. But um, 27 and 30 finish up the, the tabernacle itself. So let's start, and this is gonna be really skimming, but we'll, uh, it's, it's all we can do. <coughs> Otherwise we, and I'd just like to end the tabernacle before the summer break. Start in Exodus 27 verse one. It says, you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long, and five cubits broad, the altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and pans. Um, you shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze and on its on the net you shall make four bronze rings at, the four, at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards as it, been, as it has been shown you on the mountains, so it shall be made. Um, the altar, just a second, let me get my notes out here. Second. Yeah. Uh, the altar is right here inside of the courtyard. It's the biggest piece of furniture. 
It's seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and about um, four and a half feet tall. So like this, it's a big thing. Why is it so big? You gotta put a cow on there. You gotta put an ox on there. It's gotta be big. Um, it is made of acacia wood, like everything else. Acacia wood is um, wood that is not susceptible to wood destroying pests. It's covered in bronze um, and it has horns on it. So it has some sort of projection going out from the side. Anybody know what the horns are for? Um, Psalm, you can, we, we won't turn there, but Psalm 118 says, 112, I better, just a second. One of the two, I don't have it, I do have it written down. Uh, either Psalm 118 or 112 says that it is for tying the animal to the altar, right? You're gonna lay a big animal on there and you're gonna slaughter it, and they, they tie it to the altar. Um, I guess you could tie it a different way, but they tie it to the altar. Uh, there's another reason for the horns. That's a good question, but I, I think it's slaughtered on the altar. Now, what you would do with the blood, the blood you would think would put out the, the fire, but but I don't know the answer to that, Rod. That's a good question. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe goats and whatnot, they put on there and tied them down, I don't know. <laughs> you know. We're getting into technical questions that the Bible doesn't answer, so some of you probably would have much more. Um, go ahead, Matt. Nope, not for skewering. Come on, there's another reason for the horns on the altar. What'd you do when you fled for mercy? Grab the horns of the altar. Um, the altar, was a place where you basically ran and pleaded your case, but uh, held on to the altar if you were innocent. Um, in Amos chapter three, God talks about, it's Amos 3.14, we won't turn there, we're just so pressed for time, but he talks about uh, false altars that had been built in Bethel. And God says, I will break the horns of the altars off. The horn of the altar is actually pretty important. Um, God says, I'll break the horns of those altars off. There's no mercy there. There's no sacrifice there. Okay, the question for us is, by the way, the, the fire in the altar was kindled by God as it was in the temple that uh, uh, Solomon made. God actually kindles the fire. He sends fire from heaven to light it, and it never goes out. It is constantly burning. Worst job in Israel is the men who have to carry the altar because the coals stay in there. You don't take them out. So you are carrying, think of today, carrying a burning hot altar and carrying it through the desert. This is not your best job. Give me the table of showbread or something else, but, but that's a bad job. Okay, what is the altar represent to us? Yeah, it, it represents sacrifice. It represents the idea that you do not come to God, you cannot even approach God without sacrifice. And uh, ultimately that sacrifice, um, all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament were to no avail if it wasn't for 
the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So oftentimes people will picture the, the, uh, this bronze altar as representing the cross. It was at the cross where the sacrifice was made. Um, there are also people who will say that this uh, altar represents Jesus himself or that it represents uh, the Lord's table. Um, and you say, how in the world do they get to that or even to this? And I'll show you that. It's in Hebrews. It's a very interesting passage. Okay. Um, but for us, it is always going to represent sacrifice. You do not approach God. By the way, nobody just wandered into the courtyard. If you came into the courtyard, you had business. This wasn't a park. You had business, and the business was to offer a sacrifice. The priest would offer it for you, and then the priest would go into the, to the holy place. Um, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Um, Hebrews is the book that gives us a lot of our understanding of the tabernacle uh, because <coughs> he is arguing with the people who are Jews who wish to go back to Judaism. They have embraced Christ and now want to go back to escape persecution. And the key word in Hebrews is better. What we have is better. And in Hebrews chapter 13, he's actually talking about separating ourselves from the world, but he gives a little analogy and it starts in verse 10. Um, he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is bought, brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And then it encourages us to follow Christ outside the city, which would mean going outside of um, the, the old covenant system. Um, it says there in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Um, the food that was sacrificed at this altar, the priests were allowed to eat. Parts of them, different sacrifices. They were allowed to eat from it. Um, but there was one sacrifice that they were not allowed to eat from. It says, we have, a, we have an altar that, that the people who minister in the tent have no right to eat from. And then it says, Verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by, by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. Which blood was brought into the holy place? Only the sin offered, the animal offered on the day of atonement. That is the only blood that was ever brought into the holy place. There were a lot of sacrifices and a lot of sacrifices you could eat from, but the sacrifice that was brought into the holy place, sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, that animal was not eaten. Instead, it was actually slaughtered and it wasn't burnt on the sac offering, the altar. It was taken outside the camp and burned outside the camp. 
and the author of Hebrews is saying, we have an altar. I actually think, and there's some commentators who say that altar and sacrifice are almost synonymous at this point. We have a sacrifice that those who um, minister at the temple would have had no right to eat from, but we have a right to eat from that. And that's why they come up with this, that it's the Lord's table. It represents us uh, eating the body of Jesus Christ. We actually eat from the sacrifice that was offered at the Day of Atonement. We have a greater sacrifice. Um, I, I throw all of these out because I don't know which the right one is, but I do know that it represents the sacrifice. Um, we see the need for sacrifice. This fire went up for all uh, the entire time. If you were in the camp, you saw that, that fire going up. But when Jesus Christ, that altar in a sense disappears. There's no more need for any more sacrifice. The, the, the smoke is done. Um, so that is the, the altar. Any comments or questions on the altar? Um, well, there were different types of offerings, and they did take some of the meat from some of them, but, the, but the, on the Day of Atonement, the, the animal was actually burned outside the camp. He was, the altar was there, but he was slaughtered on the altar, but then taken and burned outside the camp. Okay? Now, um, by the way, that's just food for thought. Some of you may want to go and do a little bit of study. What you'll find is commentators differ quite a bit on on what the altar represents, but what we do know is it represents, I, I think without question, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. You cannot even come into the courtyard without that sacrifice. All right, go back to Exodus with me, Exodus 27. Um, the very next thing, we're gonna go very quickly over these next two. The next one is the courtyard. And in fact, in lieu of time, I'm not even gonna read it. You can read it yourself. Uh, the courtyard, 150 feet long, is made up of pillars that have bronze bases to them with hooks. And between those hooks are hanging um, white linen and about 10 feet across, roughly. Um, and that's all the way around the tabernacle, except at the front where they have that same white linen with the blue and purple and scarlet embroidery and uh, in there, all right? Um, the courtyard is setting apart the, uh, the tabernacle, making a, a kind of a holy space. Now, we said that the high priest goes into here the priests can come in here. The people of Israel can come in here. Almost spelled that wrong. The people of Israel, the children of Israel. Technically, I imagine a circumcised Gentile could go in as well. But in a sense, what the tavern, the um, courtyard does is it separates. It's a wall of separation. It keeps people out. Um, I don't think, this is my opinion, I don't think that, tab that, that courtyard still stands today. Um, and, and I think that because when you get to Ephesians, uh, go with me to Ephesians chapter two. Um, I, I think the whole idea of that separation is, is gone. Um, 
Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13. It says, um, actually, if you go back, it says, remember, before you were circumcised, you were separated from Christ, alienated to the commonwealth, strangers to the promises. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So this is my opinion. You can disagree with me if you want, but I think when Jesus died, not only was this veil taken away, I think that this outer courtyard was taken away. Whosoever will may come. Um, you need to come through sacrifice, you need to come through here, but you still have to come, and it's, it's open to everybody. Uh, when they built uh, Herod's temple, which was the temple at the time of Christ, there were actually four different courtyards around the tabernacle. There was a courtyard for the Gentiles, and then on that courtyard, that, that wall of the, that courtyard, leading into the next courtyard, or the other courtyards, was penalty of death if you go past here. You enter one of the others and you will be killed. There was definitely hostility there. There was a courtyard for Israel or for Jewish women, there was a courtyard for Jewish men, and there was a courtyard for the priests. And those walls are gone, or they're separated. Okay. Um, back to Exodus chapter. By the way, those of you who haven't been for a while, we haven't been going this fast, but that's what happens when you start running out of time. So um, Exodus chapter 27 again, the last thing in here is they are commanded to bring oil for the lamps. It says, you shall command the people of Israel that they bring you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony. Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. So in order for the lamp to burn, it needed oil. In fact, some of you know the story of Hanukkah is that the lamps continued to burn for seven days when there was only one day worth of oil and it was seen as a miracle from God. The lamps were continued to be burning, but the uh, oil had to be fed into those lamps, and Aaron and his sons were responsible for keeping those lamps burning. When does it say they're supposed to be burning? It says they tend them from evening until morning. Uh, there's actually a disagreement. Um, uh, Josephus claims, and he had actually had been a priest, that the, the lamps never went out. They burned continuously. There seems to be in the Bible that the lamps only shone during the nighttime. Um, you, if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 3, um, there's just an interesting verse that leads us to believe that. Um, it says in um, 1 Samuel 3, 
verse 3, the, um, actually go back to verse 2. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So um, Samuel is in the, the temple and or the tabernacle area and where the tabernacle is but it says the lamps hadn't gone out or the lamp hadn't gone out so um, some people will say it only is lit through the night others will say it's lit all day long but i think the key to this lamp and the oil is that the lamp itself represents jesus christ and the oil would represent the presence of god uh, for us um, jump over to Revelation chapter 21. Um, starting at verse 22, and we've, we've looked at this before, but it says, And I saw no temple in the city. Um, John has seen um, the city of God, the new Jerusalem, come down out of heaven. Uh, by the way, little side point, I shouldn't probably do this, but the dimensions of the Holy of Holies was 15 by 15 by 15. It was perfect cube. Anybody know what the dimensions of the new city that comes down out of heaven are? 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. It's a perfect cube. Okay, In a sense, when you're in the Holy of Holies, you're in the city of God. You're, you're with God. You're where he'll be. You're in the new Jerusalem. Um, I saw no temple in the city, which would be a big deal to John because you're supposed to have a temple there. Uh, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. You don't need a lamp because God is the lamp. You don't need something burning through the night because God is there. The light is for the nations. They will bring into it glory and honor of the nations by nothing unclean, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. If you jump down to verse five of chapter 22, and night will be no more, they will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever, okay? Um, so the oil, we talked about the lampstand before, but the oil obviously is what is needed to, um, to cause the light to burn. All right, jump over with me now. Like I said, we're moving really fast, but chapter 30. Chapter 28 and 29 deal with the priests. I think there's probably a reason why he puts the priests here before the end, but we finally get to the last part of it. And we have chapter 30 has four sections to it. Uh, we've already talked about one, which is the census tax. That's where they got the silver for the bases for the tabernacle. But it begins with an altar of incense. And again, with the time, I don't have time to read it. If you want to go back and read that, you can. 
there was an altar of incense much, much smaller than this altar right here. Um, it was right next to the veil. In fact, in Hebrews, it's interesting, Hebrews says it's inside of the veil. Um, and commentators have had trouble figuring that out, but what they think is that the, the incense from it went into all of the, into all of it. This is the altar of incense. The altar of incense is fed by the coals here. The coals from this fire are brought in here and then the priests pour the incense onto it. Um, it's mentioned way after, it's the very la one of the last things that are mentioned. And, and I think it's because this is where um, we actually have a part in what's taking place. God starts from the inside where he is and what he does and now it's to us. Anybody know? What's the altar of incense represent? Yeah, the prayers, prayers of the saints. Um, in Zechariah, not Zechariah, excuse me, Zechariah, John's dad, John the Baptist's dad, he was a priest and he was in, if you read it, he was in the temple offering incense to the Lord and it said all the people outside were praying. When the priest put incense on the altar, the people understood that that was symbolic of the prayers. But it's even more so in Revelation. Um, go with me to, ooh, hope I have that written down. I think it's Revelation 5, um, where we see, ah, it's not 5. I forgot to write it down. Oh, well, there it is, there it is. Yeah, it is five, okay. In Revelation chapter five, they are before the throne. And let's start at verse six. It says, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. And he went and took the scroll and from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 arrows fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp a, and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. So we have everything that we need in here and we are to be praying. Our life is to be an offering to God, uh, but we are to, to be praying. Uh, the prayers of the saints are like that incense going up as a sweet uh, aroma to God. Um, there is a recipe for what goes on there. Not everything can be put on. In fact, some of you may remember the story. If you go back to Exodus chapter 30, um, I'm, we're not going to read it, but in verses 22 through the, the end, it actually gives the recipe for the incense. Nothing is done casually. Everything's done according to the plan of God. There's an actual recipe for the incense. Uh, one of the commentators I was reading, it was very interesting, he said that there was a man who read this, said, I'm going to make the, that incense. So he followed the recipe, and they said, you could understand that that man is not a Jew, because no Jew would do that. This recipe isn't for us. This is for God. Well, you don't make this incense. This is made specifically for God and placed on there. Um, um, remember, what did, what did um, 
Aaron's sons die because of. Yeah, well, actually, they made, they made a different incense. They offered incense that wasn't made according to the recipe, and God uh, killed them immediately. So, um, lastly, there is a basin, a bronze basin. Verse 17 says, The Lord, this is chapter 30, the Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it. Uh, between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, for which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to, to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. So, um, Right here is a basin. By the way, the dimensions are not given. It's the only piece of furniture where the dimensions aren't given. Uh, when Solomon made his temple, they give the dimensions of it, so it's probably the same. But it's interesting that there's no dimensions given. I don't know why. And it's filled with water. And the picture is that before you go into here, you have to, to wash. Um, and probably the same thing before you offered sacrifices, you bathed. Uh, so they washed their hands and their feet. And by the way, their robes would probably be splattered with blood, but it was their hands and their feet that are washed. So what's the significance of the basin? Well, in order to come into here, we need sacrifice, and then we need to be bathed, and then we go in here. And so some people will say that that represents baptism, that you're saved and then baptized and then you enter into, but yeah, Lisa is shaking her head. Why are you shaking your head, Lisa? I don't agree. Okay, yeah, I knew you didn't agree. She was shaking her head no, by the way, so I knew she didn't agree. Why don't you agree? Yes. Um, however, there is a more baptism, an outward sign of an inward event, and you are baptized immediately when we are saved. We're saved, we're baptized by the Holy Spirit, we're placed into the body of Christ, and then we're allowed to go in. Um, think of some of our songs. Are you washed in the blood? Or there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains if you go to 1 Peter chapter 3 1 Peter chapter 3 um, uh, Peter talks about baptism and likens it to that uh, ooh. oh I was in chapter 2 that's why okay First um, Peter chapter 3, verse 21 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not a, as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, we are baptized by the, the blood of Jesus Christ or by the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. We're baptized by the Holy Spirit and we are placed into the body of Christ. So, so the, the picture of the tabernacle 
once we've taken this away, we come to the cross, we're cleansed through his sacrifice, we're allowed into the holy place. Everything that we need is in the holy place. We are righteous before God because his blood has been sprinkled on there. He is our propitiation. He is our mercy seat. We have the bread of life. We have the living water. There were drink offerings on that table. We have the light of the lamp. We have the light of the word of God. And we are to be um, offering up prayers. In other words, our worship to God. This is taken out and the outside dividing wall is taken out and we all are given access uh, to God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So that's the tabernacle proper. Some of you who came in here at the end, uh, again, I didn't, you can ask people, we didn't go that fast over the rest of it, but I wanted to finish that. Next week will be the priest's garments, which may sound like, okay, it's just the priest's clothes, but it's actually a a really interesting section, all of the symbolism that is in what the priests wear and the high priests wear as they go in and minister to God. Any comments or questions here before we, we finish? Rodney. I keep, as, as you were talking today, I keep being impressed with the fact that when God gave Moses the law, he gave him the plan for the temple. And your comment last week was the reason for that was that, that God condemned us with a law that gave us mercy. Yeah, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say exactly God condemned us with the law, but if all he had brought down was the law, there would have been nothing but condemnation. So we get both the, the law, which has to be kept for salvation, and the tabernacle, which provides the means back to God in spite of our inability to. Um, but I, you may be right. We are, the, 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 it does say the law condemns in the New Testament. But I think we were condemned already, even without the Ten Commandments. Um, very little, because there's no temple, right? They, they don't have a place to worship. So um, that's, that's why Judaism has been in somewhat of a uh, disarray ever since the temple was destroyed. What, what's amazing is, somebody pointed out, if we walk into our church, which is in the little theater, but even when ours is built, we will have very little of this symbolism, right? Because it's all manifested spiritually. Um, the only thing we're gonna have is a cross, a pulpit for teaching, and most churches will have a, a table that says, do this in remembrance of me, right? Um, they, they said actually it, it almost, it, you take out all of the trappings of religion in a sense because it was all there before and it's all, it's all gone now because of what Jesus Christ has done. That's, it's very interesting. Um, so, any other comments before we finish? All right, let's go ahead and...